Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Walk. The public safety minister says amendments to Ottawa's controversial gun control legislation are not intended to target law-abiding gun owners. But that's exactly what critics say the proposed changes to Bill C-21 are doing. The backlash has been swift from hunters, Indigenous groups and opposition MPs, as well as some provinces. This is uh, very political. This is not about uh, targeting safety. This is not about targeting reducing gun crime. Joining me now is Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino. Thank you for joining us, Minister. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. I have to start with this amendment. What, what was the deal? Why did you decide to tack this onto handgun legislation and it seems take a lot of your stakeholders by surprise? Well, the purpose of Bill C-21 is to reduce gun crime. And when we tabled it last spring, we did say that we would be open uh, about receiving an amendment to create an evergreen provision, which is a model agnostic approach to prohibiting certain firearms, which were either designed for the battlefield or are too dangerous uh, for civilian purposes. And we acknowledge that there have been a lot of concerns, as you pointed off off the top, which is why we're going to take the time to make whatever fine-tuning to the language of the amendment, uh, as well as the listings, to, to, to get this right. And the way that you do that is by having a thoughtful, civilized debate based on facts and not fear. There's also a lot of other good in the bill, as you know, the national handgun freeze, raising the maximum sentences against hardened gun traffickers, red flag, yellow flag protocols, for which there is broad multipartisan support. So I am optimistic that we will be able to work through this amendment and hopefully pass this legislation as quickly as possible in the new year. Where did the advice come from to put this amendment in? Let's take a step back to May 2020 when we introduced an order in council, uh, which is our national assault style uh, firearms ban. And there are some objective criteria by which we judge certain guns either to fall into that military style category or are too dangerous. And the rationale here is to move away from cherry picking firearms, which can sometimes be politicized. And we want to take the temperature down. You know, we know that there have been concerns that have been expressed, which is why we're going to support the committee in its study of this bill. We're going to engage with hunters and farmers and indigenous peoples who have expressed concerns to make whatever fine tuning to get this right. The bigger picture is we've got a gun. Uh, we have a we have a plan to reduce gun violence not only through smart, responsible gun control by investing, but also by investing four hundred and fifty million dollars over the last two years to stop illegal gun smuggling at our borders and to prevent gun crime through our Building Safer Communities Fund. So there's a lot of but, work. But with there. all due respect, Minister, and with all those goals, and I understand. I mean, I think all Canadians would like to see gun violence reduced. It doesn't answer the question about where you got the advice to put this amendment in. Where did that advice on what should be in here come from? Was it political staff? Was it PMO? Was it the public service? It doesn't seem to have been a lot of the folks who feel they're being targeted. So who advised you to do this? Well, you know, in fact, um, when we introduced our national assault style rifle ban, there was broad support from law enforcement because these guns are too dangerous to be left in our community. So we are getting advice uh, from nonpartisan professional public servants, including law enforcement. And we recognize that the amendment does require uh, some uh, very thoughtful and careful study, which is something um, that we are committed to doing through dialogue. As you pointed out, at the very top. Um, our goal here is to target those guns, which uh, were AR-15 style guns, like ones used at Portapic and Truro and Polytechnique. I've grieved with those families. 
We never want another one of those tragedies again. We all, I think, are united in the common cause to eradicate gun violence. It is hard work. It is emotionally charged at times, which is why we want to take the temperature down and have a, a debate that is based on facts and not fear. But, Minister, I mean, you, you say you want a debate based on facts but not fear. Uh, AR-15s and military-style assault rifles aren't what Indigenous hunters are, are using. So how did the amendment end up written the way that it is where these groups are saying, and, and it's not just one, it's groups across the country who are saying that this is catching up legitimate hunting rifles that don't have an AR-15's capabilities? Well, I think the vast majority of the models that are listed and the ones that would be uh, captured by the objective criteria in the Evergreen provision would not be controversial. That having been said, Again, we do uh, understand that concerns have been expressed around some of the uh, the models that uh, that may be legitimately used by hunters and Indigenous peoples, which is why we're going to support the committee in its study of this, which is why we're going to engage. And I have been engaging uh, with rural communities, with hunting communities, with Indigenous peoples to make sure that we get this right. I'd like to talk to you about China as well. It's another big concern. I know it's a huge concern for a number of the organizations under your ministry. We now know because of documents that were tabled at committee that Privy Council was warning the Prime Minister's office as early as February of 2020 about concerns on sophisticated networks from China uh, trying to influence Canadian elections. Do you think it's fair to say that you've been aware of this since February of 2020? Well, look, we uh, get briefings all the time about national security threats, including potential foreign interference by China. And we're eyes wide open. We're very sober about uh, the risks that are posed by that. And uh, as you've reported and many others, um, those uh, threats exist against our uh, democratic institutions, against our elections, against, um, you know, when it comes to cybercrime. Uh, we have to be very vigilant about this. So uh, as we have those conversations within government, uh, we are also making sure that our national security community has all of the tools that are necessary. Let me give you a few concrete examples how we're doing that. The legislation that I introduced last spring, Bill C-26, which will ensure that we're protecting our, uh, our cyber uh, critical infrastructure. Um, the legislation that we introduced to stop um, foreign funding, which could influence elections through Bill C-76, the independent panels that we put into place to ensure that the integrity of our elections is preserved. All of these mechanisms are in place to protect our democratic institutions and Canadian interests when it comes to threats posed by hostile state actors. Are you looking at foreign agent laws? It's something the UK is looking at that would essentially criminalize it if someone is found out to be acting covertly on behalf of a foreign power in Canada. And I don't just mean the foreign agent's registry, which would require you to overtly say that. I'm talking about covert networks that might be operating. Well, I think we're, you know, keeping the options open. Um, look, I think it's really important for your viewers and for Canadians to know that we are... Um, at a point in our national security landscape where there are uh, threats abound when it comes to foreign interference. That means having the agility and the uh, capacity uh, to mitigate and respond to them. I mean, another example that I would offer that gives us that capacity is Bill C-59, which we passed in 2019. It allows CSIS to put into place threat reduction measures, but with the corresponding transparency uh, that is required through the creation of NSI COP and NSERA, so that Canadians can be confident that as we respond to those new threats, that we're doing it in a way that is consistent with our laws and the Charter. Minister, are you aware 
And do you think it would be fair to say your, your ministry and aspects within your ministry are aware of sophisticated foreign interference networks that are operating at the riding and candidate level, trying to influence elections in favor of the People's Republic of China? I think the starting point of um, this discussion is that um, we need to be very vigilant about threats that can manifest at every level of government uh, and that could uh, pose a threat to all of our democratic institutions, uh, be it elections, uh, be it other um, uh, critical infrastructure. And that's why it is important that we have the discussion that you've been asking me about, which is whether or not we have the tools in place or whether or not we need to modernize them. But, but are you able to confirm or deny to me whether or not you are aware of allegations about threats at the writing and candidate level? Uh, I would say that we are always vigilant against potential threats against all of our institutions, including elections, which is why we put in place those independent panels. Uh, those panels are nonpartisan, professional. Uh, they conducted uh, rigorous uh, interviews and uh, investigated whether or not there was any potential compromising of the elections in 2019. And but didn't the intelligence assessments seem to, I mean, I don't think that we're reporting that there has been interference that influenced the election. There's concerns about attempts, and, and there's certainly intelligence briefings that suggest something different and, and concerns that would be different than what the election panel would look at. They're, they're very different parts of the government. That's why we have to take a 360 view of this. Um, I, I'm simply saying to you that uh, that, that vigilance, uh, being sober about this, being eyes wide open, are the watchwords and the way in which we protect our institutions, including elections, because there's nothing more important uh, than making sure that Canadians can have their voices represented so that when we come to Parliament, whether we uh, when we come to different legislatures and city halls across the country, uh, we can be confident that that's on the basis of elections, which which are free and fair, and we will spare no effort in making sure that we protect that. Minister Mendicino, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Happy holidays, Mercedes. You too. The defense minister tabled her response to a sweeping report last May aimed at reforming military culture in the wake of the sexual misconduct scandal that has rocked the Canadian Armed Forces. Anita Anand says she accepts all 48 recommendations in the report by former Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbour. But Arbour was unimpressed, saying the response is more of the same. I find that all the reviews that are being suggested in the minister's response are for the most part internal and therefore misses entirely the central point of my report, which is the need for CAF to open up uh, to a lot more external, not only scrutiny, but input. Defence Minister Anita Anand joins me now. Uh, Minister, thank you so much for coming in. I'd like to start today, though, by getting your reaction to something that you said earlier on Parliament Hill last week. Let's uh, play that clip back. It will take time, and we will see it through. And finally, I will say that as minister, we never know how long we are going to hold our positions. But my goal is to put in place the institutional reforms necessary so that cultural change can last our lifetimes. Minister, I've interviewed you a lot of times, been in a lot of scrums with you. I've never seen an emotional reaction like that before. What were you feeling when you said that? Was it frustration with the forces? Was it exasperation that people think you're not serious? Was it determination? What was going through your mind? Mercedes, first of all, thanks for having me on. It has been a very long year 
of trying every single day to make sure that we are reforming the Canadian Armed Forces with the cultural change necessary to ensure that it is an institution where everyone who joins, who puts on a uniform in service of our country, feels safe and protected and free from sexual harassment and sexual misconduct. And at that moment, I deeply felt the need to keep going. And despite criticism coming uh, from various stakeholders and uh, the media, we need to make sure that we stay on track. And so tabling the response to Madame Arbour's report that day in the House of Commons was an extremely meaningful moment for me and for us. We had worked very hard for months and months on our response and we actually have a roadmap forward for every single one of the 48 recommendations. Unlike responses to previous reports, we are showing the Canadian public exactly what we are doing, and we are going to continue to come forward with quarterly briefings so that the Canadian public knows exactly what we've done and what we're going to do, what our progress has been. And then finally, just as Madame Arbour recommended, I appointed an external monitor an outside voice to oversee the implementation of the recommendations. And all of that, all of that work was in my mind at the moment that I was having that press conference. And, and I see that emotion in you again today as you're talking about it, but I also have to challenge you on the roadmap. I spoke to some survivors, I spoke to experts, Madame Marbour said it. Um, you're characterizing this as, as a roadmap and a clear way ahead but it's missing some pretty clear uh, key elements that somebody like you who's very organized from what I've seen in your personality would be thinking about and expecting. Timelines, benchmarks, how you're going to get there, a list of priorities of what's coming first. Mm -hmm. Where are those things? Actually, uh, what we are able to do, and you have to remember that there are 48 recommendations, so the timelines are going to differ depending on the particular recommendation at hand, is we are explaining how we are going to implement and to the extent that there is a working group that is being struck to uh, exact and make sure that we are putting forward the, the best option on the recommendation, that's an implementation mechanism. Uh, this is not about further study. This is about ensuring we get it right. And I think the Canadian public needs to have the confidence that we're taking the time to get it right. And sometimes, for example, on recommendation number five, it is difficult to put one single point in time down on paper uh, when you have systemic change of that magnitude. And so what I am doing in the report is being my prudent self to make sure that what I am saying to Canadians is what is going to occur, as opposed to giving false deadlines, which I am not confident that we can meet. But what I am confident about is that this is a different moment in terms of our response to the need for cultural change in the military. 
It's a complicated world right now. When I was thinking of topics that we could discuss today, of course, one of the things that comes to mind is the situation around the world with China, with you put out, you know, the Indo-Pacific strategy with Ukraine and Russia, with the Middle East, which still there are many significant challenges there. West Africa, Boko Haram, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb, still very active there. The Canadian Armed Forces is down several thousand people depending on who you ask. Uh, the chief of the defense staff has come out, the top general, and said, we basically would really struggle to mount a major operation. For the first time since 2017, we're not able to send fighter jets to Europe to participate in Operation Reassurance to deter Russia. We had to put ships that were designed for coastal waters into the middle of the Atlantic because we couldn't get the frigates out. Uh, this seems like a pretty dire situation. So you are exactly right that there are a number of thousands of Canadian Armed Forces that we do need to recruit and recruitment and retention and reconstitution of the Canadian Armed Forces is one of our utmost priorities. At the same time with the assets that you mentioned, the capabilities, what we are doing is being nuanced in terms of our response uh, to particular emerging global situations. So for example, we added another CC-130 to our unit in Presswick, Scotland, because the amount of aid that we are transporting on behalf of our allies uh, in support of Ukraine has been growing. And so we sometimes have to move assets from one uh, domain to another to respond to global situations. Similarly, in the Indo-Pacific strategy, we know that we are increasing Canada's presence there across a number of subject areas, defense and security, immigration, uh, diplomatic efforts, and uh, what we have ensuring that we do is to add another frigate to the Indo-Pacific. But that and, will come at the cost of the Atlantic because we don't have a spare frigate, well, that, at least that I know about. The, what's really important, though, to recognize is that the Chief of Defense staff and I stand back and we talk about where assets would be put to their best use. But he and, sounds like he's saying that they, they can't mount a major operation, which is more than just reallocating a shortage of assets. Well, actually, I think you should look at the contributions that Canada has made and continues to make. Uh, training 34,000 Ukrainian Armed Forces members with training units in England as well as in Poland training Ukrainian engineers. And in terms of the Romanian effort uh, with the jets, uh, that decision is being made because on the horizon is the procurement of 88 future fighters, and we need to make sure that our pilots are trained and our assets are in. How, how fast do you think you're going to get that? those? Because I think the last the note I have says 2025, and we're in 20, going about to be 2023. That's a pretty significant gap. We will be concluding that contract in the very short term and moving to ensure that the assets arrive as soon as possible. But in advance of that, we need to make sure we have the pilots trained and we need to make sure that we have the that. infrastructure in place to house the 88 new future fighters. And so there is long-term planning occurring to make sure that we are ready to accept the new capabilities that we are contracting for as 
as well as to continue to grow the Canadian Armed Forces the way we must to ensure a robust military for Canada's defence. We just have a few moments left, but I want to put a question to you because it's one I get a lot from the troops, and by the troops I mean like privates and corporals. Some of the living conditions at bases, mould in the barracks, rodents, pretty dire not something a lot of people want to sign up to live in. Are you looking at renewing that infrastructure and dealing with the situations? Because some of these pictures are, are pretty disturbing. Yes, I am. And I have heard the same uh, concerns across the country. When I visit bases and I talk to members of the Canadian Armed Forces, which is a priority for me, I hear that the cost of living, as well as our infrastructure, needs attention. And so that is very much a focus of my discussions with the Chief of Defence Staff, as well as our future planning. We know that Canadians are facing uh, housing crises, as well as uh, facing the cost of inflation. The Canadian Armed Forces are not immune to these concerns, and we are attacking them head on. Minister, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Mercedes. The House of Commons paid tribute last week to Winnipeg South Centre MP Jim Carr. He died of cancer just days after MPs passed his private member's bill that will build a green prairie economy, as it promises. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says his former cabinet minister embodied public service. Jim was a gentleman. He was a mentor. Jim was a friend to many. Jim was a great Canadian. The House has now wrapped for the holidays and MPs have gone home. They will return to Parliament on January 30th. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back here next Sunday. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for The West Block.